Welcome to the Mind Body Heather podcast, where we discuss all things mental health and self-care at home, at work, and in the wild. We break down complex mental health topics and make them easy for anyone to understand and relentlessly advocate for the destigmatization of mental illness. No matter who you are, if you want to learn more about mental health and self-care, this podcast is for you. Please note that the information discussed in this podcast is not intended to be used as medical advice or treatment. If you're struggling with your mental health, please reach out to a qualified professional for help. If you feel you're in crisis, please text the crisis hotline at 741-741. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mind Body Heather podcast. I'm your host, Heather Antanavica. It's so good to be sitting with the mic after a long week of lots of work. This is really one of my happy places, y'all. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who supports this show because I'm having so much fun connecting with all of you this way. Some of the work I did this week is going to result in a couple of major announcements. Actually, by the time you're listening to this, I have already made one announcement. I will share here for those of you who did not catch my stories. So I recently applied to a doctoral program at Toro University, which is where I went for my uh, clinical marriage and family therapy master's degree. And I am excited to share that I was accepted into the program and have decided to give it a go. The old college try, you know, lol, dad joke. I'll be starting the program in May, and if all goes well, I guess I'll be Dr. Antanavica in a few years. That's pretty weird. Uh, Please just always call me Heather. Uh, This is something I've been thinking about since before I even finished my master's program in 2019, so to finally have the courage to give myself this opportunity is massive. I'm excited and nervous, but I think I'm supposed to feel that way. Uh... I have dreams of working in research and full professorship, and this is really the best slash only way to get there, so to the muffin hat I go. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google doctoral student graduation cap. I'm honestly just full of terrible jokes today. So yeah, I thought I'd share the big news here, and I'll certainly share the share-worthy parts of my journey over the next few years. So keep me in your thoughts and prayers, as it should be an interesting and wild ride. Um, The second announcement will be coming out, uh, hopefully, um, by the next podcast episode and it has to do with a project that I've been working on and I'm getting close to the end of it so I am excited to release that very soon just putting the finishing touches on the entire project and then I will release it and share with all of you. All right I think those are the announcements for this week. So thank you for bearing with me. And as always, thank you for your support. And uh, with that said, it is everyone's favorite week, Q&A week. I took some of your questions on Instagram and Facebook. And I 
will get to as many of them as I can. The last Q&A week was a little long. Um, I'm going to try to get to more questions, but uh, I will always expand more on something if I think that it's worth sharing, you know, that detailed of information in an answer. Uh, But without further ado, let's jump right in. So the first question is, I think this is a great question. ADD presents differently in girls. How do you get a doctor to see that? Evaluation is so generic. All right. So first of all, I just want to share that ADD is an outdated term. It died with the last DSM edition. And in the DSM-5, we have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And if you listened to my last episode all about dopamine and ADHD and their fun little relationship, you may or may not remember the different types. So we have the hyperactive type, the inattentive type, and the combination type. Of both. So uh, we have ADHD now, so ADD is out the door. Um, but, anyways, your question is um, about how it presents differently in girls and how to get doctors to see that with regards to uh, generic evaluations that are given to both um, biological males and females. So, <clears throat> so this is a great question. Uh, I wish I had a very specific answer for you. However, all evaluations that are given these days are based on research and they are up to date uh, as, as far as their corresponding research goes. But of course, evaluations are not perfect. So there really is no psychological evaluation that exists out there in the world that is 100% accurate. So While some evaluations are very accurate, um, they have high levels of accuracy, I should say they aren't 100% accurate. And so I think what's more important here is making sure that you are working with a a specialized psychologist or uh, clinician, or if you are working with a psychiatrist, um, you know, any of the above, just making sure that they're, they have that knowledge, that skill set in ADHD specifically, uh, that's going to be really important. So, you know, for example, I am a mental health clinician and I am uh, a practicing, you know, a practicing clinician that diagnoses mental health conditions. Uh, I don't use a specific evaluation to diagnose ADHD. I use, I mean, I guess you could call it an evaluation, but along with the DSM-5 is a set of uh, questions for each diagnosis in the manual. So there's this little interview book that um, has been wonderful uh, in terms of diagnosing disorders. And what I do is I go through the questions and it sort of takes you through this path of like, if yes, go to the next question. Uh, If no, skip the next question and go to the next one. So uh, there are a lot of um, really great uh, questions that are in that little book that don't require this big, massive evaluation. 
And also, I can spot ADHD fairly easily in most cases because it's something I I know a lot about versus maybe some other conditions that would be a little bit trickier for me and I would need, um, you know, some some support from my peers. Um, But you're right, it does present differently in girls and that's, you know, great great for knowing that uh, because it does and... um, I think it's autism is another one that also presents differently in girls. And so that's important to know. So I think the answer here is just make sure you work with somebody who really has a good amount of experience with ADHD and has that understanding. And you can always feel free to say, you know, what you know. Go in and say, I, you know, I'm I'm looking to have, you know, if this is like a child, you know, one of your children looking to have my daughter evaluated for ADHD. And from what I know, based on my research, is that it presents differently in girls. So it's a little tricky. You know, I'm wondering if you could help me figure out if this is what we are dealing with. Um, And then just, you know, pay close attention to to how they interact um, and to how or interact with that question how they answer you, and just go from there. And if you feel like you're not getting the information that you are, you know, hoping for in terms of like quality detailed information that makes you feel like, okay, this makes sense. I understand it. It was explained well to me. Like I am a normal person. This wasn't excessive jargon, blah, 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 blah. You know, you can, I would say, accept that as a, as a pretty good indicator that the person knows what they're talking about and what they're doing. But if you don't feel like that's the case, get another opinion. Uh, in terms of in terms of neurological testing, one really important thing to know about ADHD testing um, is that it is often not covered under insurance, which I'm not even going to get into because it's very frustrating. Um I personally was never able to get a neuropsychological evaluation for ADHD uh, because it just, it, the insurance didn't cover it. They they consider it not a medical need, which is, you know, a little frustrating, but um, it is what it is. So if you want to pay, you know, well over a grand for that testing, um, you know, certainly it's available. Um, but most clinicians should be able to accurately diagnose ADHD. All right. So the second question, um, the second question is really broad. Um, so I'm going to do my best to give you an answer. Um, but it's definitely a, a, a broad one. So the second question is, how do I help support the mental health of my little crew? I'm assuming your little crew is a crew of children. Um, please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, I, I, I always like to point out that I do not um, give parenting advice. It's not my, you know, it, it, it's not my area of expertise. It's not my place. Um, I personally am not a parent. But what I can say and, and where I can come from with this answer is, I obviously work with many adult individuals uh, and families, of course, and couples, all the above, who have come from many different uh, walks of life in terms of nurture. And I can 
tell you what I see as things that a lot of um, my clients were missing as children that they now report that they feel like makes a major impact on their adult lives. So I think the first thing to talk about is like um, psychological safety. And I think this is going to be the foundation of my answer here. Uh, Creating a psychologically safe space for your children is of paramount importance. If your children don't feel like they can safely express to you how they feel, and when I say safely, I mean being validated, feeling truly heard and listened to. So, you know, whether it's making eye contact or, you know, whatever is culturally appropriate for your family, um, just making sure that they know that they're being heard and, um, you know, giving them that validation in their feelings and just allowing them the opportunity to just offer you that full expression of how they feel about situations, their thoughts, and uh, just creating a non-judging, loving space for them. It sounds simple because it just really is that simple in terms of, I'm not saying it's necessarily always easy, I'm saying it's that simple. Children who grow up in a psychologically unsafe home often grow up with what we call insecure attachment styles. So there are a couple different insecure attachment styles. The two major ones that we see are anxious avoidant and uh, anxious attached. Wait, anxious avoidant and anxious attached. Anxious. So one, I think I'm getting one of them wrong, but basically one of them is the adult grows up to avoid getting, you know, potentially here's some examples, getting too close to other people. They are more, um, you know, extremely independent, not in necessarily the best way. They sort of take it to the next level where they are, they have a difficult time accepting help. Uh, They may be apt to push people away once they get too close. They may not be willing to be as affectionate or open with their feelings or emotions. They are more avoidant. Um, They might uh, exit stage right when there's conflict rather than confront it. Uh, Basically, just any sort of avoidance behaviors. And then on the flip side of things, we can see people uh, become extremely codependent and have a really difficult time making decisions for themselves uh, or just, you know, completing tasks Um, on their own without the help of other people. Uh, We usually see a lot of these folks are uh, struggling with self-esteem issues and self-confidence issues, and um, which obviously can lead to other issues. And, And typically what we see with these insecure attachment styles are relationship issues um, just with not just partners, but family, friends, partners, uh, just anyone and everyone. There's usually some sort of a difficult issue with interpersonal relationships. So that's really my answer. Create a psychologically safe space. And with that said, of course, as a child should be free to express themselves fully. It's, you know, important to help them understand when they are expressing polarizing thoughts and help them have a more expansive thought pattern. So, you know, 
kids often, you know, before they develop abstract thinking or have difficulty rationalizing their thoughts, um, can be really black and white. And um, it's important to help them see that there is more than just black or white as answers in the world. If you're not doing math, um, you know, there's typically some other perspective to take on a situation. And so while validating and giving them that psychological safety, it is important to help them to challenge their thoughts when they are black and white to the point where they are, you know, struggling to see outside of their um, sometimes tunnel vision. So giving them the tools that they need to have expansive thinking. This will be very helpful for their mental health in the future. As we often see uh, polarizing thinking, very black and white um, thought process in people with clinical depression and, uh, you know, clinical uh, anxiety and some other things. So that is my answer for you. Okay, third question how can I trust myself to make good decisions? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you here. I almost didn't answer this one tonight because I wanted more time to think about it. And the reason why is because this is something that I have struggled with my whole life. So I caught myself avoiding wanting to answer this and almost not answering it because I didn't feel like I was equipped to do it. So here I am confronting that head on and I am going to try my best to answer your question on a podcast that is released on Spotify for quite literally almost anybody to listen to. So I am uh, I'm doing a little of the work here with you. Okay. So how can I trust myself to make good decisions? All right. I think... I think being able to trust yourself to make good decisions comes from a good, strong base of self-confidence. I think when you feel like you can't trust your decisions, a lot of it stems from maybe feeling like you have, maybe not feeling like, but viewing past failures as negative things. So we've all made decisions that didn't result in what we expected, right? We've all made decisions that probably weren't the best decision. But if we can look back on those decisions that didn't result in what we had hoped for as learning opportunities rather than failures, uh, we can build our confidence from there. Also, just knowing that with every opportunity that we give ourselves to make a decision, to be strong in our decision-making skills and say, this is what I'm going to do. I'm sticking to it unless I get other valuable information that steers me in a different direction after evaluating it. Then uh, the more you do that and trust yourself and be able to view failures as learning opportunities, I think this just arms you with uh just less fear. I think you'll be less afraid to do it. We don't, I don't think we fear the decision-making process itself. I mean, it can be difficult. We fear the failure that is the, that is a possibility as a result of making a decision. And then if we make the decision ourselves and it doesn't turn out as we'd hoped, 
We only have ourselves to blame. And it sometimes feels better to blame other people than to look in the mirror and say, I messed up. I made a bad decision. But we have to do that. We have to make decisions that aren't great in order for us to learn and grow um, and, and really make progress in life. And then over time, as we give ourselves the opportunities to learn and grow, we will get stronger at making decisions because we'll have more information. Failing is an opportunity to gain probably more information than in any other situation in life. So give yourself the opportunity to fail. Um, and then I think that in and of itself will allow you to feel a little bit more free, let go of the uh, just the, the excessive need to control all the situations. Just let go a little bit um, and just trust yourself to make good decisions. Because even though we've all made bad decisions, we've all made good decisions too. So you can choose to reflect on the fact that you've made bad decisions or reflect on the fact that you've made good decisions. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to reflect on the fact that I made good decisions. And all of these things are what helps me. So I hope that they help you as well. Okay, I got through that. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, here is the fourth and final question that I'm going to answer tonight. So the fourth question is, where is it? Okay, there it is. What are the best foods for brain health? Love this question. I'm ending on this note because it's a little bit of a lighter ending topic. And um, it's super, super important. So obviously, as I think many of you know, I take a real holistic approach to working with clients and I like to learn about how they take care of themselves and the environments that they put themselves in. I obviously, mind, body, Heather, believe that everything is connected and of course how we nourish our bodies and our minds is, it, it, it yields results. It's just, it's it's either going to be a make or break situation for you. If you don't feed yourself properly, it will show up in your mental health um, and obviously your physical health and those two are completely connected. So to answer your question, let's go through some of the best foods for brain health, okay? I'll give you a second. If you want to take out your pen and paper or some sort of notes, this would be a great opportunity to do that. Um, so green leafy vegetables, so obviously we know great for you in terms of fiber, um, but also great for brain health. So kale, spinach, collards, broccoli, these are all rich in brain healthy nutrients such as vitamin K, lutein, folate, beta carotene, um, and then, you know, there's some research out there that suggests that these Plant-based foods may help slow cognitive decline. So we love that hot topic right now for sure. The uh, topic of living a longer and healthier life. Um, also foods with omega-3 fatty acids. So these are healthy unsaturated fats that have been linked to lower levels of um, the protein that forms damaging, I guess we could call them clumps, 
I'm not a neuroscientist, in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So um, omega-3 fatty acids, they are, um, they're, they're working hard to combat the, uh, the damage that occurs in the brains of people with Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's. So, um, so some terrestrial omega-3 sources would be flax seeds and avocados and walnuts, but definitely look up, uh, foods with omega-3 fatty acids. Uh, berries is another one. So, Berries have flavonoids, and those are the natural plant pigments that give berries their hues. Um, well, they just so happen to also help improve memory, so that's great. And I'm seeing kind of a trend here, like as I'm as I'm talking about this, like we're talking a lot about like cognitive, um, you know, combating cognitive decline by you know preserving memory. Uh, this is this is exciting and great, and it's. I mean, we. I'm not saying it's exciting like it's new, but it's exciting because we can feed ourselves a longer, healthier life. Um, so there was a study that was done by um, Harvard. I think it was um, at Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston. Um, the study found that women who consumed two or more servings of strawberries and blueberries each week actually delayed memory decline by up to two and a half years. So it doesn't sound like much, but that's that is that's great. I mean, that's just by eating berries. And here, I've got to be honest, I don't eat enough fruit. So pretty much the only way I consume consume fruit is through some sort of uh shake. What am I trying to say? Smoothie. Um I'm not good with fruit. And this is making me think I should probably go with some fruit. Um, so a couple more. So tea and coffee. That's good news. I definitely have that. Uh, I, no shortage of coffee in my life. So the caffeine is what's important to you. The caffeine in your morning cup of coffee or whenever you drink it or tea. Um, this offers obviously a short-term concentration boost, but... There was a study in 2014 um, published in the Journal of Nutrition. The participants with higher caffeine consumption scored better on tests of mental function. Uh, I think that study was pretty like widely publicized. There was more detail about it. Um, but this was kind of when they were saying like, drink more coffee. It's good for your brain. And people were like, huh, F yes. Um, caffeine might also help to solidify new memories so that's a kind of a cool one so like um our working memory or the things that are happening like in the current moment that we want to be able to capture and, and remember whether it's that we're studying or we're having a really good time or, you know we're at an event and we want to be able to capture and solidify them basically cement them into our brains so we don't forget caffeine helps with that um and then finally, um, I mentioned walnuts earlier, but um, a little bit more specifically wal- about walnuts. They are great sources of protein and healthy fats. And um, walnuts in particular might also help improve, well, memory. So in 2015, there was a study in UCLA that linked higher walnut consumption to improved cognitive test scores. Walnuts are high in a type of omega-3 fatty acid, which uh, we talked about earlier, alpha-linolenic oh acid. 
Why are words so hard? Um, ALA. Let's just call it that. Um, diets rich in ALA. This is why I did not follow through with a degree in nutrition. I'm like, I can't even say the words. Your girl's going to be a doctor, but I, I can't say these words. These these chemistry words. I don't, what, what, I, that wasn't even an accent. Anyways, so these diets rich in ALA and other, um, and like other omega-3 fatty acids, these have also been linked to lower blood pressure and cleaner arteries, which is both good for the heart and the brain because it's all connected. Okay. I'm sure there's more, but that's all I can think of. Um, so again, not a nutritionist, but uh, certainly have studied a lot about nutrition in the brain. Um, so that's, that is what I know. Um, I think I'm going to stop there with the questions because there was a couple more that I want to save for next time because they're really important and I want to give them more time. But these I wanted to make sure I answered because a couple of them were from, uh, a few weeks ago when I did a Q&A episode. So those are your answers to your questions. I hope I helped as always. Um, I am thinking about potentially having a guest on for next week's podcast. In the first episode, the kickoff kickoff episode <laughs> words, I had mentioned that guests would be a part of the show. There are logistical uh, elements to having guests on a show when you are not Joe Rogan and have a flourishing podcast studio. Um, but I am going to figure it out and I'm thinking about having my first my first guest on next week. So stay tuned for that. Um, if you're listening to this and you ever are interested in becoming a guest on the Mind Body Heather podcast, I need to stop because I clearly can't talk. I did some yoga before. I did 45 minutes of yoga before this and I'm realizing that the yoga needs to come after because I get really zened out after yoga and then I just my brain's like no words it's just going to be hard for you um so I if if you feel like you want to come on the podcast just shoot me a dm do it now before I'm just huge rich and famous like Joe Rogan um you know do it now uh no but really if you feel like you want to have a conversation about mental health if you feel like there's anything you can contribute to this community that may be something that's out of my area of expertise I am definitely looking for people with uh firsthand experience in certain areas um I'm, I would love to have somebody on the podcast with postpartum depression uh experience firsthand I would love to have somebody on the podcast that has uh, more parenting experience, um, specifically parenting um, children with mental health conditions. Uh, I would love to have somebody on the podcast that is um, a family member or a really close friend of somebody who's an active addiction. Uh, these are areas that are not my strong suit. And so I would love to have other super smart, amazing people on the podcast to be able to talk about those things so that we can be nice, well, and rounded. Um, that's it, y'all. So I want to say thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Mind Body Heather podcast. As always, please rate, 
leave a review, subscribe, ring the bell, do all of the things so that I can continue to share as much free mental health content with as many people as possible. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time.